was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 14. This is the creative podcast comprising cordial conversation and comprehensive contemplation concerning a cocksure combative commander who is, of course, also curiously conspicuous, James Bond 007. A very warm welcome inside the cubbyhole. Do make yourself at home. As ever, we hope you're enjoying our reviews of the Bond films. Your support in downloading and listening to us each week is much appreciated. Do feel free to get in touch with the show and indeed make connections with your fellow listeners, uh, affectionately known to us at least as the Cubbies. On social media, just search our title, Facebook and Instagram, and you should be able to find us quite easily. Or if tweeting is your thing, head on over to Twitter, where we're under the shorter handle of More Cubby. We're also open to all manner of questions and suggested Bond discussion topics. So if you'd like the chance for your ideas to be featured in our Q branch, i.e. questions branch segment, then do drop us an email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 13, Octopussy, which saw Bond pitted against a crazy collection of villains, from the smooth Kamal Khan to the tough Indian odd job Gabinda, to the new romantic knife-wielding twins, and of course, to the maddest of them all, General Orlov. But if you thought we'd hit the peak of craziness, then you were quite mistaken, because all we're seeing this week is a view to a kill, Bond number 14. Of course, it was Roger Moore's final and his least favorite of his seven Bond outings. Some increased violence and age, perhaps, to blame for that. Uh, and he said that there was no chemistry with uh, Tanya Roberts and a genuine dislike for Grace Jones. But do we have a similar assessment of Sir Roger's final Bond film? Does it tickle our Tchaikovsky's? So flexing our Bond knowledge today, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who has a rock salt shotgun and knows how to rustle up a quiche. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I'm very good, thanks, Martin. Thank you for the uh, for the intro. I do enjoy a good quiche, it must be said. Just to add to your thanks to everyone that's been getting in touch on Facebook and Twitter. Again, everybody has been really good either commenting or following us since the last episode. So again, if we do miss you, I do apologize. Just really quickly on Facebook to Shamir Ravji, to Patricia, to Lorenzo Granger, to Wolfgang Tyralf, to Tony Perry, to Sarah L. Arge, to Julia Hurtado, to Peter Eli, Anthony Kujak, and Andrew Davey. On Twitter, so many of you getting in touch with us with your comments and uh, likes and follows. So thank you so much for that. So just a really quick run through. So thank you to Gerardo Saparosi, Mike Royal, The Avengers, Nunca de Menos, Frank McNally, Greg G, Thomas James, Licensed to Queer, Alex RJ Luz, The Double O Section, Adam Hastings, At Needle Design, That Guy Sai, Hannah Loves Movies, Junior Robinson, Jane Blonde 007, At Oz JBL2, Steve Long, Brett Hengeler, Simon, At Anonymous Eon Employee, we do enjoy your page too, At Ian Rogers, 
Peter Kaminsky, at Carly, and you're going to need a bigger boat, Hoop Studios, and you only quote twice. So we, we had a lot more people uh, sort of mentioning us and tweeting us. Obviously, I'd be, we'd be going on for the entire episode just to thank everyone. But of course, if you do want a particular shout out, please do let us know. And thank you for all the, um, the interaction. Yeah, I'd certainly second that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Phil. Uh, so actually, I've got some Max news before we begin the podcast. Not Max Zorin, but back to Max the Parrot. I promise this will be our last mention of Max the Parrot for a while. If you're following us on Instagram, you might already know this. But apparently, Max the Parrot, in real life, he was called Chrome. And not only does he appear in, for your eyes only, The Living Daylights, uh, he also starred in the Pink Panther series. And he was also interestingly owned by diana rigg so does that change your opinion phil chrome the parrot was close to the heart of your favorite bond woman dame diana okay that might change things actually that may that may be a winner max is no longer sort of derided by my my uh, my opinions he's now gone up in my estimations did we finally won you round, phil and secondly, it's the man who amuses me, and I hope it's mutual. It's Adam St. John Smythe. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for the St. John as opposed to St. John. Everyone always gets that wrong. Uh, I should actually first start off with an apology to Lois Maxwell and uh, indeed the uh, descendants of Lois Maxwell. Last week, I attempted to describe Miss Moneypenny as staunch and doughty and ended up muddling my words and called her stout and doughty. So just a little apology there. Sometimes I get overexcited and I say things wrong, but no offence intended to Miss Maxwell. We love you. I don't think anyone noticed Adam until you mentioned it. <laughs> Maybe she was a bit stout. I, I, I have to say, uh, I have um, heard her described in the, these last two films that she appears in as Money Penny as looking a bit like a man in drag. So perhaps I was correct all along. I don't think that, incidentally. I, I think she's uh, perennially lovely. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that was more harsh than your initial mistake, Adam. I mean, it is true the outfit she wears to the races in this is pretty frumpy. It's not great, but let's be honest, it's kind of the end of an era that Maxwell leaves after this film. It's a bit sad. Not as sad as that hat. I feel like I've made this an awful lot worse than it ever needed to be. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I ever brought it up. Okay, so uh, moving away from Money Penny, uh, we'll move over to Adam and Alan, who I guess is quite happy about Fiona Fullerton's appearance this time around. So uh, over to you guys. He certainly is. Don't worry about that. So A View to a Kill, the 14th James Bond film, taking its title from one of the short stories from the For Your Eyes Only collection. John Glenn returns for Bond film number three as director, the third of his five consecutive films. It is the final film in the role for Sir Roger Moore, and also after 14 performances, the final performance from Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. Michael G. Wilson shares producing credit with Albert R. Broccoli for the first time, as well as co-writing the screenplay with Richard Maybaum, as they had both done on the previous two films as well. A View to a Kill's released in June 1985, so still just three years ahead of Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! So A View to a Kill is made on a budget of $30 million, and it goes on to gross $152.6 million worldwide. So whilst it's still a hit, there has been a steady decline in the grosses from the peak we reached with Moonraker. However, the film does represent a peak in terms of the chart performance of its title song. Duran Duran's A View to a Kill remains the only Bond theme to go to number one in the USA. But putting that aside for a moment, let's learn a bit more about this film from Alan Partridge. 
Hobbling down the gun barrel, it's Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Old man Bond snowboards away from Siberian goons to the Beach Boys and cops off in a Great British Iceberg submarine. Cue Duran Duran. After treating Moneypenny to a day at the races to spy on grade-A nutter Max Zorin, old man Bond meets the friendiest detective ever up the Eiffel Tower. But he's killed by a butterfly cabaret act, and Bond smashes up half of Paris and ruins a wedding to chase the tower-jumping assassin Mayday. Old man Bond and disgruntled chauffeur Sir Godfrey go undercover at Zorin's stud farm, where after some quick-fire innuendos... I love an early morning ride. I'm an early riser myself. Bond finally meets weirdo Zorin. I'm happiest. In the saddle. Dressed in horrendous bomber jackets, old man Bond and Godders go round making midnight mischief before Mayday sleeps with Bond for no apparent reason. Zorin tries to kill Bond in a steeplechase. What you need is a stallion. You amuse me, Mr. Bond. While Mayday offs Godders in a dirty roller, beats up Dolph Lundgren and chucks a rich dude out of a blimp. Anyone else want to drop out? In San Francisco, old man Bond outwits Russia's sexiest polar Ivanova in a naughty bathhouse. <laughs> the bubbles, they tickle my Tchaikovsky. And breaks into unlikely geologist Stacy Sutton's mansion and cooks her a quiche. But Zorin captures them at City Hall. They were trapped in the elevator and perished in the flames. Despite Stacy's incessant screaming, old man Bond escapes and ridicules yet another incompetent American police force in a fire engine. Old man Bond and Stacy sneak into Zorin's mine, where he's about to set off a bomb to flood Silicon Valley. Zorin machine guns his entire army. <laughs> Good. Right on schedule. But Bond and Mayday team up to get rid of the mega bomb, which blows up Mayday on a comedy handcart. Mayday? Oh no! Bond ties Zorin's blimp to the Golden Gate Bridge. More! More power! Do it! Drops him into the bay, and a doddering old Nazi scientist blows up the blimp with an acme stick of dynamite, while Q spies on old man Bond and Stacy having a sexy shower. Oh, James. Oh. The end. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan, and also Christopher Walken, I feel, deserves a credit. I, th I think he started taking over a bit. So, a great summary there of A View to a Kill. My goodness, where do we, where do we start with this film? Firstly, I'd say that I don't know what the film's supposed to be, and I think that's something that the producers had trouble with as well. I guess we have some, some rompy elements. We get some of the most gruesome violence as well of the, of the series so far, and in amongst that we get the incredible phrases of Walken. Uh, so I know that uh, in previous podcasts, Adam, you've mentioned that uh, there kind of has to be a good balance, a good blend of uh, action, suspense and humour. And I feel like this film probably does not get that balance right at all, which I guess is kind of a shame because I think on paper, maybe you might say that this Bond film delivers some stunning locations some also some good stunt work as well, largely because Sir Roger is not doing any of it. So on paper, it looks good, but it's just the way that the action plays out on the screen is not very good, in, in my opinion. But before I get too negative, maybe we should go over to, uh, to Phil. Previously, Phil, you said this is your guilty pleasure bond. Do you stick by that? What, can we, what good things can we say about A View to a Kill? Well, I want to say from the outset that I completely understand most Bond fans will see this film as a, you know, as an embarrassing entry for the series. And it's obviously it's Sir Roger Moore's last and he's, he's got advancing years in the film. 
However, I don't know why, but there's just something about it that I love. I think it's just the stupidity of it. The idea that, you know, two old men are effectively having a jolly around Paris to try and infiltrate this billionaire industrialist. This is the worst cover in history. And yet somehow nobody twigs from the very start of this is James Bond. And it just kind of goes from there. I mean, it starts idiotically where we've got this kind of ski chase. You've obviously got the Beach Boys, California Girls playing in the background and then the least subtle submarine ever made with the iceberg submarine. And, you know, you, you just get the feeling they may as well play We All Live in a Yellow Submarine as they sail off. It's just that ridiculous. There's, it's just, it's one of those films, it reminds me of, there's an old Jackie Chan film from the sort of mid to late 90s called Jackie Chan's Who Am I? And this is going to sound like a bit of an odd segue, but it might just be the silliest film ever made. And this film has that same air of it. It's, it's kind of, they almost felt like nobody's going to take it seriously, so we may as well ramp up the idiocy. So there's scenes where, you know, Roger Moore and Patrick Mania are both having a fight in a warehouse where the average age is about 85 because the henchmen even look old. There's a scene where Roger Moore is trying to do horse riding badly, basically, where for some reason only the henchmen are worse than he is. You know, he can literally do everything in this film, even though you get the feeling that he couldn't do any of it. It's, it's, just, it's so stupid and so ridiculous. I just, I just love it from start to finish because of that. I was actually about to ask, Phil, I, I thought we were going over for you for a defence of the film, and, and it sort of was in the end. You brought it back round, but, but after pretty much describing everything that's wrong with it, that was quite something. I have a real soft spot for it. I, I know that, again, I know that kind of nobody's really acting in it. You know, Roger Moore is sleepwalking through it. Tanya Roberts isn't acting, and even when she is, it's kind of, it's more wooden than a shed. Just a quick note, if Tanya Roberts is listening, we're happy for an interview. Phil does not represent all of us. We'll come on to her, I'm sure. I, I feel Tanya Roberts is more miscast than bad in the film, I would say. Um, yeah, I, I think the word is tired for me when, when coming to think about A View to a Kill. It's, it's a rather tired film. It's a rare misfire in terms of the direction from John Glenn, who we, we do otherwise really like, and also the editing. It's, it's very, very slow, this film, and we spend really too long at each setting. So it's tired in that respect. And it's also tired, of course, in terms of the age of Roger Moore at this point. Um, it's remarkable how much older he looks in this, even from, you know, Octopussy two years ago. And I think sort of to match that, there is a little bit of a lapse back to the bad habits of early Roger Moore, the kind of sleeping with women for no other reason justified than to jump into bed with them. Uh, and also the action sequences themselves, I think, lack a lot of imagination. You feel somehow like we are falling back here on, on what has worked before and doing inferior versions of, of setups that we've seen. And the other thing that I guess mention in terms of this being 1985 is it now feels weirdly anachronistic in how old school it is. At this point, cinema's blockbuster cinema, at least, has branched off into two directions. On the one hand, we've got films like The Goonies and The Breakfast Club and Back to the Future come out this year. And so that's courting a sort of slightly cooler hipper, younger generation with those comedy blockbusters. But at the other end, First Blood Part 2 and Commando come out this year as well. And so action cinema is going down the increasingly violent route with muscle-bound stars like Schwarzenegger and Stallone in the leads. And at this point, the Bond series does start to feel creaky and a bit out of time. Yeah, I'd say for me, I'm not sure whether Roger, I mean, he does look older. I wonder what happened to him in 1984, really, between the other two films. <laughs> what, what was he going through? some plastic surgery obviously if you if you look closely at his face but i'm not so bothered actually by his 
his age because I think Octopussy proved that you can still do a good Bond film with an older lead so I think I had more of an issue with as you mentioned Adam there the the scenes that don't really fit together in the story very well so I feel like most of the blame has to be in the screenplay and some of the characterization was poor as well worth saying he is actually quite trim in this film is is the thing he has clearly got an awareness of, of how old he looks facially and has tried to compensate for that in terms of getting into a slightly better physical shape uh, he is slimmer in this than he is in for your eyes only and octopusy and it's quite noticeable uh, and the other thing i would actually take issue with in terms of what you were saying phil about the ridiculousness of this film i actually think there's a lack in general of the silliness that always plagues even the more sort of straight and serious Roger Moore films like the previous two, certainly for your eyes only. I guess the problem in this one is um, a lot of the silliness is a bit unintentional, whereas before what I was taking umbrage with was the deliberate daftness of the humour, which was distracting a little bit from from the action and and some of the more serious nature of the storyline and the characters. This one is actually played fairly straight and, and fairly violently as well at times. Yeah, I think you're right to an extent, Adam. I think that there is a mix where obviously Roger Moore does try to maintain that physicality, but he, there are mo- I mean, there are a lot of gaffes in this film as well. Let's not beat her out of the bush about this. There's a lot of scenes where there's kind of like cameras in the back of shot, and you know, there's the scenes where when during the taxi scene through Paris, there's a mic gets in the back of one of the shots as well. The fact that Bond has to rely on Sir Godfrey Tibbet as well to kind of help him during the the scenes at Max Zorin's palace, it's, again, they, they're kind of clunky and very clumsily put together in terms of how, I mean, kind of Sir Godfrey's seen as like this sort of expert of equine health and of um, of horse racing, and yet he's almost played for laughs. He's almost as like this sort of, you know, character that Bond feels is getting in his way almost, because without him, Bond could still infiltrate Max Zorin's horse riding laboratory, and he could still investigate that without him. And then obviously, even in the scenes where they have the fight in the warehouse, they're still having to use stuntmen. You see, there's a very obvious scene where Sir Godfrey Tibbet is launched backwards into the boxes, and it literally cuts to a stuntman. Yeah, I do wonder if um, if perhaps the creatives behind the film, in terms of John Glenn, the director, and maybe the screenwriters, um, Michael G. Wilson perhaps, were at this point quite ready to move on from Roger Moore and, and you, you sense want to progress more towards what they would achieve when, when Dalton takes over. But I'm not entirely sure beyond presumably, you know, one last go at the, the wheel and, and the cash that he'd have got for it, why Roger was so drawn to doing another one. But I was also very confused as to why Albert R. Broccoli was, was so adamant in sticking with Moore at this point. You, you do just sense that it, it was the right time after Octopussy, having created a, a pretty solid and a pretty good Bond film, to just allow that era to fade and go out on a high and move on at that point. Yeah, I felt it, it feels a bit like Diamonds Are Forever, doesn't it, in that sense? Bond needing to move on as a franchise, but they're, they're stuck with the old actor, not quite sure where to go. Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, way of putting it, actually. Yeah, and of course, in Diamonds Are Forever, they're making a better job, actually, in terms of making that film in the tone and the style that they would adopt once they'd got a more suitable Bond actor in Roger Moore. Uh, this one's kind of not even at, at that stage, I would say, in, in that, you know, it's not a film which is like The Living Daylights or License to Kill. It's, it's sort of a weirdly subpar for your eyes only in which the seriousness and the edge of it just doesn't quite manifest itself because of the lead actor because there is that block there do you think this would have been a much different film if they'd have brought in timothy dalton earlier if they'd have said to roger moore you know we're not going to make any more with you beyond octopussy 
we're going to try with Timothy Dalton? Do you think it would have completely changed the feel of the film? It's entirely possible because, of course, you wouldn't have written the script um, being between those two stalls of wanting to go edgier, but, but having also to suit Roger Moore. So I guess writing it with Timothy Dalton in mind as the lead could could very well have fixed a lot of the uh, the issues with it and certainly removed the um, the tiredness factor, I guess. So it's one of the great what ifs. But um, if you're asking, do I think it was an error for Roger Moore to have done the seventh one? Yeah, you'd probably say so. So shall we, we usually start with some chat about the, uh, the main villain. We've already heard from him, but quite an incredible character portrayed by Walken, who was the, uh, the first Bond actor to win an Academy Award. Rightly didn't win any awards for this performance, but you can tell that he's having some real fun with it, can't you? A real maniac of a character relishing every single line, every weird intonation of his voice seems to carry the uh, the film along its uh, rather slow-moving plot. Yeah, I love Christopher Walken. I think I think he is one of the great actors, and that he makes such a difference to this film because he's he's literally he's just so bonkers in it. It's, I mean, I know we spoke last time about um, General Orlov in Octopussy. But Christopher Walken looks almost looks at Burkhoff's performance and goes, "I could do much better than that." I'll, you know, I'll blow that out of the water, and then he really does it. Just it's just this, it's just mental from start to finish. You know, it's, it's, I spoke last week about the idea is this sort of head swiveling lunacy. And is this yet again? Yeah, the, the casting of Christopher Walken is, is very interesting and very important because it almost signals a new generation of, of Bond villain. Walken, not only an Oscar winner, which now they're dime a dozen playing Bond villains if you look at the last, well, the last two, and indeed Rami Malek um, coming up in the next one. But Walken, of course, is part of that great generation of sort of method-trained screen actors with real burning intensity and naturalism. Uh, and this is very much a new generation of Bond villain. We saw it in prototype form with all of, as you mentioned, but this is a truly psychopathic villain who, because he is so psychotic, incurs the wrath of Bond himself. He genuinely seems to hate him and detest him. And he's also a new generation of villain in terms of he has no real traditional political affiliation. He very crucially betrays General Gogol and the Russians, but also in terms of the threat he represents, flooding Silicon Valley, sees in control of the global microchip market. It's a very forward-thinking threat and a very sort of future-based plan, I guess, that he's trying to pull off. Uh, but at the same time, he looks backwards to the spectre of Nazism and World War II, the fact that he is a product of Nazi biological engineering as well. And so on two levels, he represents a new level of psychopathy. Yeah, and I think alongside that forward-looking part of his character, I like the fact that it's reminiscent well, the, the whole storyline is reminiscent of Goldfinger, but particularly the character of Auric Goldfinger. I really enjoyed the uh, the scene where he's in the Zeppelin and he's describing his plan, very similar to Goldfinger's uh, Operation Grand Slam. And we get just the, there's a very small touch where he raises his arms as the model of Silicon Valley emerges from the table. And I think that really linked together nicely with Goldfinger's arrogance and the, the showing off of that character. Uh, and then, of course, the ejecting quite literally the man who drops out. You sense that uh, maybe he was a little disappointed to have to rely on the big model he's got in the blimp, because um, of course it was as Auric Goldfinger's Kentucky stud farm that he does the great presentation of Operation Grand Slam. Presumably, Max Zorin also having a stud farm, at which we spend a lot of time. He had a much bigger, grander model, maybe hid behind some portraits that he just wasn't able to use. And so it got to the end of that section. He's like, oh no, I had my big model. It was all there, it was ready. Everyone's gone. 
So that was kind of indeed the secondary model and the secondary presentation. There's another model in the mine as well, isn't there? Who's that for? That's just for Yeah, he's got a model Stacey. absolutely he's got a model absolutely everywhere. Maybe he just loves and um, in that classical Bond villain arrogance uh, sense. He just loves re-explaining his plot. So every time someone new turns up, hey come here, I gotta show you this, and he just walks them through the whole thing again. Maybe he just really likes model making. He's just got a, a massive range of different models. He's got like one of the airship in one of his offices, and he's just he's got like can you imagine him with Lego? He just have like loads of different Lego versions of his mine and his flooding Silicon Valley. I guess the mere fact that he's got a blimp or a kind of Zeppelin as well sort of re-emphasizes that link back to Nazism, thinking about, you know, those big Nazi blimps and airships that were around in the 30s. Although I'm not sure how many of the Nazi ones had like sort of fun slide stairs that you could um, drop rich industrialists out on. Or at least the very obvious dummies of rich industrialists, as it turns out. Just on that guy, where did he think he was going down those steps? I mean, surely that's the only way in and out of the blimp, isn't it? What an idiot. Could easily have avoided that. Yeah, I was going to say, there's literally nothing there, is there? It's literally just a flight of stairs that just leads to a little piece of... Well, nothing at all. It's just... It seems bizarre that he'd, he'd fall for that. Yeah, I feel sorry for the uh, the actor who plays that guy, Anthony Chin, is one of the only extras to appear in four Bond films. He was in Doctor No, Goldfinger. You only live twice and then finally he gets his first speaking part here and he gets dropped from the zeppelin i'm always impressed by how calm a businessman he is just that moment when they say can you go outside if you're not in he's like oh yeah yeah if you'd like me to sure it's just so blasé and casual uh yeah yeah you're you're talking about uh, global domination on a massive scale yeah I'll, I'll just chill outside for a bit i'll grab myself a coke and a lemonade what is it you propose project main strike for which each of you will pay me one hundred million dollars. hundred million dollars? Plus half our net income? Under an exclusive marketing agreement with me. These are outrageous terms. Well, perhaps a, a, a demonstration would convince you. I want no part of it, thank you. As you wish. Hmm. The rest of our discussion must, of course, be confidential. Would you wait outside? If you'd like me to, yes. Excuse me. Thank you. Mayday, I provide you with a drink. This way. <laughs> so, does anybody else want to drop out? Well, together with Zorin, we get the inimitable Grace Jones as Mayday. Well, there's lots to say about her. <laughs> Where should we start? Not to be mean, but Grace Jones scares me a little bit. So I think I think that casting her as Mayday was kind of a, a brilliant choice because she's, again, Grace Jones in this film is terrifying. And it's difficult to put your finger on why. It's just there's something very menacing about her, I think. She's almost the equal to Max Zorin, in terms, certainly in terms of physical presence, because she can certainly beat people up and you know, does a lot of Zorin's bidding, you imagine. But it's also interesting, the dynamic that she's kind of cast as his girlfriend as well, you know, that it's his love interest as well. And obviously Bond has to then do, admittedly, perhaps the most awkward bedroom scene ever filmed. But no, I think it was an act of genius to actually hire her as, as Mayday. And I think Mayday is one of the memorable characters of the film. 
Yeah, I love Grace Jones as, as Mayday. I'm not sure to what extent it's a performance. I think she is kind of just being Grace Jones. But that's sort of what's so brilliant about it. Interestingly, um, the original choice of actor to play Max Zorin uh, was David Bowie. And Grace Jones, for me, has always been kind of a female version of Bowie in terms of, of course, being an incredibly physically striking and inventive musician, but someone who has that kind of androgyny and that, that sense of the polymorphous about them. And Grace Jones, I think, brings that to this film in such a brilliantly physical way. She, she absolutely kicks Zorin's arse at judo. You, you, you know, there's, the, of course, the very obvious symbolism in that bedroom scene, which I don't agree is the most uncomfortable or awkward scene. I think it's quite an interesting one in that there's a great symbolism of her spinning Roger Moore around in the bed and being the character who is on top. I don't think we've seen any of the Bond women do that before. And so for me, all of this merges together into a character who is very much the ultimate femme fatale. I don't think any of them have come anywhere near Grace Jones because of the power that the character is given. And, and of course, she is the one who, who kills most of the characters in this film. I don't think until his finale with the machine gun. Zorin actually does very much. It's, it's always Mayday who's doing the dirty work. And all of that, I think, comes together really brilliantly to create that striking character who has a real sense of terror just imbued about her. Yeah, I think she works really well kind of in the tradition of the strong, powerful henchman or henchwoman in this case. She probably works better, I feel, at the start of the film when she's the silent hench person. She's got that lurking presence and the... Well, the death of Sir Geoffrey Tibbet is perhaps one of my favourite moments of the film because it's really serious and the symbolism of that works really well. Maybe similar to the death of Vijay in, uh, in Octopussy that we discussed last week. So, uh, yeah, I think she works well as the, the silent, powerful assassin. But then maybe towards the end, not so sure about the direction they take it, the Jaws direction of her going good after so many deaths and so many murders. Uh, so that seemed a bit ridiculous. Uh, then right at the end, of course, her should be the most powerful scene when she's uh, saving everyone by blowing up the bomb herself. But I kind of laughed out loud at that moment when she said, get Zorin for me! And I, I don't think I should have left there. For me, I think that the finale where it's, you know, the mine, I think it, they do play it quite well, in my opinion. I think, you know, Mayday is obviously very angry with Zorin because she feels betrayed that she's been double-crossed. We see that obviously the two other kind of henchwomen of, of Zorin's empire are both killed. And obviously Mayday wants revenge on him. So I think they try and play it the best way they can. I'm not really sure you could have it any other way rather than having, you know, Mayday with her strength and her power be able to handle the very small train that goes out of the, out of the mine shaft and obviously then explodes. So I think in terms of the way they set it up, I think it is a very good way of doing it. Whether or not the delivery is as good as it could have been, I'm not sure. And certainly, obviously, I, I wouldn't argue in any sense that the finale where they basically crash into the Golden Gate Bridge is completely idiotic. But I think the whole mineshaft sequence is actually really well put together. I think the way it builds up, I think, is actually a really great part of the film. Yeah, I think you are right, Phil, in terms of the actual filming and performance of the sequence where she lowers the crane down and they bring the bomb up. The physicality of that is all great. And Grace Jones, I think, really sells that, both with the muscularity of her performance and, of course, the rage in how she's delivering the dialogue. I do sort of fall closer to what Martin's saying. I don't think that conversion to the side of good and right completely works. And I think the reason it doesn't completely work is that the relationship between her and Max Zorin isn't really fleshed out enough in order for you to sense just how deeply betrayed she is by him, having been his lover and his closest confidant, to have then been left for dead and, and left to drown or be blown up or whatever. 
yeah, I'm not entirely buying her flip to the good side either. Yeah, apparently Grace Jones liked to play her music very loudly in the dressing room, whereas Roger Moore wanted a little afternoon nap. So you can see how their uh, their working styles might be very different. And apparently, obviously, Roger Moore famous for having a little joke in between takes, whereas Grace Jones was, uh, as you mentioned, Adam, she's just playing Grace Jones, and her character in this film is to hate Bond. Uh, so apparently Roger didn't like that. Oh, yeah, don't mess with Grace Jones at all. Didn't you have a slightly unrepeatable anecdote, Phil, about um, uh, Roger Moore and Grace Jones' love scene at the stud farm? Basically, there is a suggestion online that Grace Jones brought a uh, particular item that is often used to uh, progress. Um... There was an extra appendage underneath the robe, I think, is yes. what you're trying to suggest. Yeah, that yes, is the rumour. Yes, it would so certainly that's... explain the look on Roger Moore's face when she does this robe. Roger Moore's just mucking about with everyone on this film as he's just having a jolly at this stage, just collecting the money and having a laugh. I'll tell you who is on a jolly in this film, Q. He gets a day at the races and then he gets his classic closing peeping Tom moment. Clearly he has some way of knowing exactly when Bond is having sex because Q is literally always there with a camera. Even if he has to create a little remote controlled robot and send it into the house where he's um, enjoying a little private shower. Do we think we should be reporting Q somewhere? I mean, this, this doesn't seem like the, the best use of government property. Well, yes, technically we should be reporting Q mainly for dereliction of duty, but also the fact I, I disagree that it's only Q having a jolly. I think they're all having a jolly. Everybody's just complete. It's almost like everybody got drunk before filming starts. So, yeah, we'll just play it like that. It'll be fine. So I do agree that Q is perhaps a little bit lazy in this film in terms of he doesn't really invent anything. His only real purpose is to explain what a microchip is. Do we also think that uh, Sir Freddy has the, the worst memory of any character? Because uh, Hugo Drax in Moonraker was a French businessman who went mental. But now in this film, Sir Freddie can't believe it. No, this French industrialist, he's, he's got a legitimate business. I have to say, mine, you beat me to the punch here. I was going to talk about Sir Frederick Grey as being a first-class political buffoon. He never wants to investigate the main villain because they just belong to his bridge club. Or, you know, in this case, Magzor and his friends with a couple of people in my government. He is just, he never wants to investigate anyone. And you just think, maybe you should let the, the intelligence services do their job. Frederick. He is an absolute buffoon, doddering old idiot. The leading lady, who's not so leading, Miss Stacey Sutton. What did we think about uh, Tanya Roberts here? I'd say, not given, Phil, you, you attacked her at the beginning, but I feel like she's got nothing to work with here. I'd say probably out of all of the films we've watched so far, she is the complete damsel in distress, isn't she? Screaming all the time, that got annoying in the elevator shaft. I mean, I always think, why can't she climb that elevator shaft, but she can climb out of the mine? I mean, in fairness, the mine wasn't on fire, so maybe that was the reason why it was a little bit easier to climb out of that. And obviously, when, when something's on fire, I think I'd be a bit reluctant to climb into it. But no, yeah, I, I do agree, Martin. Maybe I was a bit harsh at the start, but it's it's only from a point that, not anything against Tanya Roberts, but obviously reading in 
kind of the trivia and some of the information online, apparently, yeah, kind of Tanya Roberts accepted the role because she wanted it to be almost a launch pad for a, a wider career. So obviously this was kind of her breakthrough performance she wanted it to aim for. So obviously she wanted to do something similar to Kim Bassinger in Never Say Never Again, where obviously she, um, you know, became the leading lady in that and then her career skyrocketed. This didn't really happen with this film. And it's, it's I kind of think it's because, again, you know, Tanya Roberts doesn't really get that much to do She's not really pivotal to the to the plot being finished. You know, I mean, you don't really need her to defuse the bomb. That's obviously, that's Mayday and Bond together. All she can really do is get captured by people or get stuck in awkward situations. I mean, I think the, the biggest contribution she makes is kind of driving the fire engine. That's about all she really does throughout the film. And it's, it is a shame because they could have done a lot more with that character and it could have been a lot more of a powerful performance. But I think it was kind of one of those things that was lost in the mix. It was kind of, oh, we need another Bond girl for, for Bond. So let's just, we'll just shoehorn another one in somewhere. I think for me, the, the, the Tanya Roberts thing is that she is just miscast rather than actively bad in this film. Um, and she, she is rather too eager, I guess, in her performance to play up the screeching damselness. Uh, and, and the helplessness of the role rather than actually embrace the role as written. Because if we think about that scene where she's talking about her backstory, when we're at her sort of empty mansion and she's talking about why it's empty and how she's been caught up in all of this, we do learn that, you know, that character is supposed to be, if played as written, a smart geologist uh, and also a very proud businesswoman who stood up to this huge multimillionaire psychotic businessman Max Zorin and has decided she would rather sell off everything she has in order to stand up to him and fight him through the course. And so in the script there is a sense of strength to that character. It's just that Tanya Roberts is not the right actress to, to bring that out. You, you almost feel like, you know, we, we've talked and sung her praises a lot, but imagine that role as played by Maud Adams. It just needed an actress who was able to bring all of that out a little bit more. No, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think that Tanya Roberts as Stacey, again, it's kind of, she probably wasn't the right person for the role. And, and as you say, kind of Maud Adams might have been a better choice. I wonder, obviously, we've probably not mentioned it just yet, but obviously Fiona Fullerton also appears in this film. Do you think that they maybe should have swapped those around? Do you think Fiona Fullerton would have been better as Stacey Sutton? Possibly. I mean, I mean, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I mean I'm sure Tanya Roberts was cast on the basis of she's an incredibly beautiful young actress and, and that's obviously you know the appeal they want from that character I mean Fiona Fullerton it is true does an awful lot with the two scenes that she gets uh, I mean you know that memorable line which um, of course we've uh, we've already been over um, but but yeah that's a lovely little scene that she gets with Roger Moore in um, in the bathhouse she, she gets into the fun of it for sure well, I think the uh, I think that scene exemplifies the mismatch of uh, of tones for the film because she's working as a Russian agent and she's just seen her partner get brutally murdered in in a turbine. And then the next scene, literally the next scene, the bubbles are tickling her Tchaikovsky. So you don't know what to think really as the, as the the scenes progress. It is true. It does come out of absolutely nowhere about it, and particularly after that. I mean, I mean, there are moments of quite extreme violence the Zorin machine gunning. And that was one of the scenes I think that Roger Moore had huge issues with. He felt that was just far too violent for Bond. You know, I, I feel like the Bond films can get violent and that's absolutely fine. But when it feels like gratuitously violent, it really does dwell on Machine Gun Massacre in a way that does feel slightly unsavory. And again, in terms of that odd mismatch of tones, you've got all of that going on. And then it cuts to close-ups of Christopher Walken doing his uh, craziest mad cackle, which, which comes off as weirdly funny. 
Should we should we talk about um, one of the characters who I feel of all the minor characters in all the Bond films is perhaps most worthy of his own spin-off, which is Achille Aubergine, the French detective at the Eiffel Tower. I mean, what on, talking about tonal mismatches, what on earth is going on with this guy? He is so over the top. Yeah, it's a bizarre inclusion. You get the feeling he's almost kind of Hercule Poirot's less successful brother, almost. It's a weird inclusion. I mean, the fact that it's trying to progress the plot by explaining that he's been investigating Zorin and, you know, the fact that his horses are always so successful. You'd expect that to be a really suspenseful part of the film because, obviously, it's building up to something much bigger. And yet it's just this really farcical moment where it's just this really odd French guy in a restaurant on the Eiffel Tower. I think what gets me about him is, is that physically he looks an awful lot like Mr. Creosote, who uh, Terry Jones plays in Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. You almost feel it was a blessing that Mayday kills him very quickly with the poisoned butterfly. Otherwise, he'd have eaten everything twice that's on the Eiffel Tower restaurant's menu and exploded over everyone. But you're right, he, he's weirdly a comedy character in otherwise quite, you know, a, a straight sequence. And that carries on actually into the action scene after it in Paris, in that we get the, the great stunt work of the jump off the Eiffel Tower and Remy Julien, the driving stuntman who did that great Citroen chase in For Your Eyes Only, is back to, to pull off some really great driving moves, which is of course marred by the fact that we get very stereotypical French people uh, going, Sacre bleu! Uh, and, you know, sipping red wine whilst they're waiting for their next taxi fare to turn up, of all things. And, of course, the fact that the car itself gets chopped up in variously comical ways. It is a good point you mentioned that, Adam, the fact that, um, yeah, we, we cut to this quite dramatic car chase and action sequence through the, the streets of Paris. But even that has to be garnered with some sense of idiocy. You know, the fact that the, the French taxi driver says, Oh, no, my car! And even and things like this, and obviously then it just launches down the flight of steps. And there's quite a lot of great action sequences, the fact that it's dodging between traffic coming the other way. And yet we finish with Bond jumping off a bridge through the uh, the boat and gate crashing a wedding, and then he's kind of arrested by two angry chefs. It's just, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous, it really does. I wanted to mention the other car chase that we get, or the, the fire truck chase, I guess. I felt like that was another comparison, an unfavorable comparison with Diamonds Are Forever. It was kind of a car chase that didn't have much point. It didn't lead anywhere. It wasn't crucial to the plot. Um, so I felt like it was similar to the one that we had in Diamonds Are Forever that kind of lacked energy, whereas it should have been the opposite. It should have been quite an exciting chase. So I felt like they were trying to get the maybe try and get some inspiration from JW, but it didn't work out, did it? In Live and Let Die, JW was an add-on to the what was already happening between Bond and the baddies, whereas this time we just get it's Bond versus the police. Uh, yeah, I'd agree, Moss. I don't think it really adds anything to the film. I mean, there, there are elements of slapstick where it's, you know, obviously Bond's hanging off the side of the ladder, and of course it culminates in the, um, the bridge jump, which just feels too much like Blues Brothers, it hurts. And it probably also reflects on the fact, I do believe that this film, it had its budgets uh, reduced quite significantly as well, so it wasn't kind of able to do as much as we'd seen in Octopussy or um, For Your Eyes Only, so it's a lot of it feels a bit scaled back anyway. Yeah, it's very much harkening back to the comedy caper-style action sequences of the two earliest Roger Moore films. Not least, of course, when the ladder rips off the top of, I think, a caravan and there are just two people... Um, under the covers in it as a sort of, um, you know, very cheap little gag. Um, and it is a shame that it's happened because it's a bad habit that uh, you felt the series had moved on from. And it also covers 
you know, the fact that some quite good and quite dangerous stunt work is being done. I mean, those Roger Moore's not on the ladder, of course, but those are the streets of San Francisco. And that is someone on the ladder being swung around. And it always distracts a little bit from the really good stunt work that's going on in these action sequences, just as, um, as we talked about before, the slide whistle distracts from just how great a driving stunt the man with the golden gun bridge jump is. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Okay, so we'll move on to our next segment, which is a roundup of the cars and gadgets. What did we have this week, Phil? So some destruction in terms of the cars. What else was there? Yeah, thanks very much, Martin. So again, with the view to a kill, we've got a bit of a step change in terms of locations and the setup for the vehicles. So this is very much the era of product placement and obviously a lot of car manufacturers are looking to get the lucrative sponsorship deals with the Bond franchise. For this year, the principal sponsorship is with the Renault Automobile Company, obviously of France. As Adam's already mentioned, Remy Julien returns as the stunt driving coordinator for the parish shoot. Interestingly, Julien spoke very little English and John Glenn, the director, spoke very little French. So they found it difficult to communicate what they actually wanted from that chase sequence. So in the end, they had to do drawings to be able to show that they wanted the car to obviously you know, go up the ramp to get cut in half and have the roof cut off. Strangely, the Renault 11 is perhaps one of the dullest cars ever to be piloted by Bond. It's used predominantly to be destroyed quite quickly. So a car of that type or any car of that type would not split in two with the ease that it does in the actual film. So what the production team had to do is structurally weaken the car that they used. Possibly a little bit of an in-joke towards the French car manufacturers to say they probably weren't built that well. You know, it's a little kind of Anglo-French dig, basically. But all in all, it's it's probably kind of the standout scene of the film, and it also progresses it so that Bond can chase after Mayday from the Eiffel Tower. Moving on to a few of the other cars as well in the actual film, Bond predominantly drives around in the Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud Series 2, so this is the one that Godfrey Tibbet drives. Interestingly enough, this was actually the car that Albert R. Broccoli used himself around London, and he had the number plate to Club One. Um, just as a little interesting side note as well, the Rolls-Royce in this film had such an effect on me that I actually picked it as my wedding car. So not the exact car itself, but because this car was so prominent in the film, I basically picked it for my own wedding. So that's actually hopefully going to take place later this year. Just a few of the really quick mentions as well. Um, we see that Paula Ivanova, when she meets with Bond, is driving a Chevrolet Corvette C4. Just to mention this quickly, quite an unusual choice for a Russian agent, considering that, you know, it's kind of this endearing symbol of capitalist America, this idea that a sports car that was quite prominent with the wealthy would be then driven by a Russian agent. So it's quite interesting that they chose that car for her. The last car to mention really quickly is obviously not a car at all. It's the fire truck. There are rumours that um, Sir Roger Moore actually drove the vehicle in the shots because he'd previously worked with lorries before becoming an actor, so he was well-versed in being able to drive heavy goods vehicles. Whether or not that is actually the case, I think it's kind of one of those urban legends that's, um, that's not really proven. 
and just to basically then go on to the gadgets. So as I've already said, there's not really a huge focus on gadgets this time. There's only really a handful. So Philips and Seiko return with sponsorship deals. So we see the Philips 660 tape recorder and dictaphone that's used by Bond. We also see the polarizing glasses that he uses to be able to see into Matt Zorin's office and the ring camera. We get a focus on the Apple computer and we also get Zorin's sort of supercomputer, which can identify any kind of spy or secret agent in the world. So that's a really, really quick sort of look through the, the vehicles and the gadgets in this film. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. After last week, I was expecting a kind of uh, unsolicited advertisement for the Emberley Chalk Pits Museum, but uh, you're, you're not as keen on that museum as the, the Neem Valley. I was tempted to include it, but I thought I, I better, you know, on the on the edge of uh, objectivity, I better not include it. As, as we've already mentioned, the Neem Valley Railway, I better, uh, better leave that one out for this episode. But no, I, I do acknowledge that that uh, mining museum was used for the filming. Oh, what's your favourite immersive heritage museum in the UK? Well, now that's a question. You see, this it's probably got to be the Great Central Railway, just because it's so near to where we used to live, and it's it's you know a great piece of English heritage. Did you ever go to Beamish? I'm a big fan of Beamish up in uh, Northumberland. I love Beamish. Yeah, Beamish is great. If if you are an international listener and you don't know what Beamish is, it's basically a uh, a sort of historical look of how the UK used to be, and it's all in a enclosed sort of interactive museum area. Personally for me, my, my own favourite museum is Bewley in the south of England. Bewley's very good. Bewley's very good as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. I'll tell you what's very good about Beamish, when you go and uh, watch them make the old-fashioned boiled sweets, I, I think that's always a really fun time. Okay, I wish I hadn't brought that up. But uh, we'll move on to our next segment, which is by the book 007. So what have we got, Adam? How does it link with the written word? Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. So we're only adapting one short story uh, that Fleming wrote for this film. Uh, and normally, even when uh, we adapt Fleming very loosely, as we are doing here, the title at least survives. In this case, not even that. Uh, the short story is the first in the For Your Eyes Only collection. And it's actually called From a View to a Kill, which if you remember the Octopussy end credits was going to be the original title of the film. But of course, the From was dropped ultimately. Now, it's uh, an interesting short story. It concerns the murder of a motorbike dispatch rider working for Shape, which is the European uh, secret service, and the theft of some documents the dispatch rider was carrying by a motorbike assassin. So it takes place from Versailles to Saint-Germain. And as James Bond is uh, stationed in nearby Paris at the time, he is the agent who is sent to work out what's happened. And so in the short story, Bond disguises himself as the new dispatch courier to redo the route. And of course, when the assassin makes yet another attempt on uh, the life of the courier, it's Bond who gets the upper hand and kills them. And that's pretty much it, to be honest. So in terms of what's carried over from the short story to the film, pretty much only the idea of us being in Paris and in France. Uh, but interestingly, if we think back to Thunderball, the character of Fiona Volpe was an invention by the screenwriters. And so perhaps the, the sort of idea of a motorbike assassin uh, carried over into that much earlier film when, of course, Fiona Volpe on the motorcycle assassinates Count Lippi. What is interesting about this story is that it began life as the backstory to Hugo Drax, the villain of the third James Bond novel, Moonraker, whose secret history uh, as a member of the Nazi party is revealed further on in the novel. And actually, this whole thing of him having been the motorbike courier 
who is given amnesia and uh, a disfigurement after an attack. This was meant to be his sort of cover-up for having then defected to the West. So that's kind of it. Not very much at all to say on this one. Very little survives from uh, book to film in terms of a view to a kill. Okay, very good. So uh, we'll move on now to my segment, which is That's Not Okay Anymore. So this is the uh, the last time we'll hear from this segment, because uh, after this film, of course, we move into the Dalton era of Bond, where things become more politically aware, shall we say. But in this, in terms of this film, I'd say there's perhaps not much to comment on either, really. We've mentioned the, the stereotypes, the French stereotypes that we get throughout the city of Paris, first with Aubergine and then with the, uh, the people involved in the car chase. And then we could say the, uh, the German stereotype of the, uh, the crazy German professor. I think they took inspiration from the real crazy German professor of the Nazi party who conducted experiments on people. So it's weird that they have that very serious inspiration, but then the character just becomes a complete farce. Yeah, it is always very strange that uh, Dr. Mortner, as a former Nazi, isn't portrayed a little bit more seriously. I mean, I mean, he is very much a, a stereotype and a caricature even of a villain with his sort of comedy monocle and uh, his sticks of dynamite. And also just his general manner, I guess. You know, th- there's something almost quite leering and leching about it, isn't there, when he's, when he's kind of watching his creation seemingly get the upper hand uh, against Bond and Stacey on the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, and I guess in terms of the sexism, not much overt sexism in this one, but we could say, of course, Roger Moore's advancing years make it rather awkward, the, uh, the love scenes with all of the, uh, the female characters. And we've mentioned Stacey's portrayal being rather damsel in distress-like, which we haven't really seen before or since. I guess also the presumptuousness of uh, Bond just leaping into Mayday's bed, you know, completely naked and uh, asking her to take care of him personally. Obviously, he has to cover up the fact that he's been snooping around uh, the laboratory. But you wonder if um, that had been in the room of anyone other than Grace Jones, who is strong enough to snap him in two if she really wanted. That would have been incredibly creepy, just this 57-year-old dude jumping into your bed naked while you're out of the room. I mean, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound good. Very true. I'd say in terms of snapping in two, maybe that would have made the car chase more realistic if Grace Jones had just snapped the car in half. Okay, so uh, should we move on to the... Cool branch. So it's the questions from you, the audience. What do we have this week, Phil? A few quick ones this week. So one that came in from Twitter, which is just the sort of more general one for the James Bond July Challenge. And I know you guys have probably played a range of different Bond video games over the years, but which ones would you say are your favourites? Well, actually, I hadn't played many of the video games as a child. I'd, I think we mentioned maybe in the first episode, I had Tomorrow Never Dies, which I played with Adam back in the day. I'd say that's probably one of my favorites. Uh, it's a dreadful game, really. The mechanics of the g- game are awful. And there's one level in particular, which is very difficult to uh, negotiate the streets of Vietnam. Uh, and of the more recent titles, I'd say Bloodstone is quite a good one. I had a I had a Nintendo 64 growing up, and so I have played on GoldenEye a lot uh, and love it, but I never had that one myself. The one I owned was The World Is Not Enough, which was pretty similar, and so that's the one that I grew up playing, and, and it'll always be the one I love the most. Particularly for the range of characters you could play in the multiplayer level. I mean, Judy Dench was on there, so you could literally run around as Judy Dench armed with a bazooka, which was always really good fun. So that one I've, I've always enjoyed. That'd be weird for you, Phil, as a child, playing as Judy Dench, playing as your own fiancé in later life. 
Yes, uh, Courage points out I've already apologised for that, but also for me, one of my earliest sort of video gaming memories was actually, as we were reviewing A View to a Kill, was playing the A View to a Kill video game on one of our old Atari, I can't remember what the console was, it was that long ago, but you could do all of the missions in the A View to a Kill film, so even onto the Golden Gate Bridge having a fight, doing the chase through Paris. I mean, it looked nothing like the sequence in the film, but you could kind of imagine yourself being Bond. It probably looked a little bit better than uh, the action sequence in the film, potentially. Okay, so moving on. So um, this question came in to us from Jake on Instagram, um, and it actually relates to the kind of the running order of the Bond films and whether you have to watch them all in order or whether there is an easier or better way to watch them. I mean, for me, the beauty of um, the Bond series is is that you don't have to watch them chronologically at all. They're all pretty much self-contained movies, and so you can pick up with whichever one happens to be on next and, and sort of go from there. I guess thinking about it, there are certain ones that you, you probably would get more out of seeing them in the correct order. Specifically, I guess, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, because they do directly follow on one from the other. You're probably best seeing Casino first. Uh, and then the films where there are characters who recur. So with Jaws, you're probably better seeing The Spy Who Loved Me before Moonraker in order to make sense of the arc of that character and his relationship with Bond. What this question did inspire me to do, though, was um, a little spreadsheet whereby I worked out what order you would watch the Bond films in if you went strictly on the age of the actor playing Bond, you know, to, to go through the films. You'd start with George Lazenby with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You'd then go through all of the first five Sean Connery films. You'd then do a little bit of early Daniel Craig before you finish Connery. Then you'd go straight to pretty much Timothy Dalton and then you'd go to early Brosnan, and then Daniel Craig comes back with Skyfall. So there's, there's an interesting gap of how many films chronologically would come between Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. Uh, and then you obviously finish Brosnan and then pretty much do all of Roger Moore last. So technically, A View to a Kill done like that would be the final Bond film. Not sure it's quite the one I'd want the series to bow out on, so you're probably best not watching it in that order. So we've had um, another question as well from Danny Shepard on email, basically to ask about the Roger Moore films now that we've come to the end of the series for Roger Moore. Having watched them, that perhaps Live and Let Die is maybe a little bit overrated and that A View to a Kill is maybe a little bit underrated. Well, I think concerning those two films in particular, I'd say no and no, because I really like Live and Let Die and I really dislike A View to a Kill. But I think Adam probably has slightly different views yeah i'm not a huge live and let die fan and i think i made that very clear and of course in context i think we kind of pinpointed it to the fact that it was tom mankiewicz writing and guy hamilton directing those three films from diamonds are forever to the man with the golden gun i'm just not a fan of the campy tone that they went for in those so yeah for me i, I definitely agree that live and let die is overrated in terms of a view to a kill being underrated, nah, I, I think it's I think it's pretty uh, shocking. This one, it's not without its merits, and, and we have talked about them. And I think certainly what seems to be consistent amongst the sort of not particularly good Bond films is that the villains usually rescue it a little bit. Christopher Lee in the Man with the Golden Gun, and I think Grace Jones and Christopher Walken in this one. Okay, so uh, before we finish the episode, let's go to the final segment, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So it's my honours. This week we had Octa Quizzy last week, 
So we have the rather boringly titled A View to a Quiz this week. So this week, you're both going to listen to different sounds from the previous seven James Bond movies. Uh, you'll get one point if you can identify the film that the noise is coming from, and you'll get a bonus point if you can tell me who or what is making the noise. If you give me an incorrect answer, it will be passed over to your opponent. They'll be able to steal the point if they get the film, but they won't be able to steal your bonus point. Okay, so we'll start with, uh, I've got each of the sounds is labelled, some of them are letters, some of them are numbers. So Phil, what would you like? Would you like the letters or the numbers? Um, I'll go letters, I think. Okay, so Phil, you've got sound A, so let's take a listen. Um, I'll be honest, I'm struggling on this one. I'd, it's not Sir Godfrey Tibbet in A View to a Kill, is it? Unfortunately, it's not, Phil, no. So the, uh, it goes over to Adam, who can steal the point. I believe that this is the sound from The Spy Who Loved Me of Jaws chomping through some licorice chains. It certainly is. Well done, Adam. So uh, you don't get the bonus point. You, you steal the one point there from Phil. Well done. So uh, over to you now with sound number one. Yeah, that, that'll be from an octopus in it's our good friend VJ Amritraj, Charming a Snake. Phil, you get a chance to steal. Adam uh, has incredibly answered incorrectly there. So my first thought was it when um, it was in Live and Let Die when Bond uh, goes to Sam Monique and he sees Baron Samadhi playing the, uh, his flute in the graveyard. It certainly is. So you've uh, taken your revenge there on Adam immediately. So sound B here for Phil. It's not for your eyes only, is it, with Blofeld? It was. Well done, Phil. That was, uh, well, it wasn't Blofeld, but I'll give, it, I'll give it to you anyway. It was Man in Wheelchair. Uh, but the oh, correct okay. answer there, Phil, you get, uh, so you get the, the two points there for correctly identifying the film and the character. So over to Adam, sound number two. Okay, so I don't think I'd have got this without that very uh, subtle musical hint at the end of it, but I think this is Knick-Knack in The Man with the Golden Gun uh, in Pat Sharp's Funhouse. It definitely is. So you get two points there, so three apiece. So it's sound C for Phil. I think it's Moonraker and Hugo Drax getting released out of the airlock. Yep, very well done, Phil. That was, I thought that was quite a difficult one, but you got the, uh, the two points. So over to Adam, sound number three. Okay, this burned me last time, but I think this is Octopussy, and I think this is Gabinda taking out some fury on a monkey suit. Yep, very well done. So uh, two points for you as well. So we go into our final round. So Phil, here's your last sound effect.
I'm not sure which character. I'm sure is that not live and let die. Unfortunately, it's not Phil. So it goes over to Adam. Any ideas? It could be one of two here. So I'm going to take a little punt, and I think it's you only live twice, and I think it's uh, the wedding of Bond and Kissy. What was your other one? My other was the dojo in the man with the golden gun. Is it that? It was the dojo. Oh no! So no points there. But Adam, a chance to win here with your final sound. That one's I, easy. Yeah, from John Barry's music, I think I think that's uh, the opening sequence of A View to a Kill when uh, Bond takes out a chopper with a flare in Siberia. It was, well done, Adam. So that gives you the two points there for the win. Well fought battle, and it's your choice for the outro. Well, we'd be very remiss not to play any Grace Jones, uh, and so I think we'll go for Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. Okay, so that brings us to an end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back in a fortnight in two weeks' time. We'll bring you the new era of Bond with Timothy Dalton and the Living Daylights. So uh, that's the end for this episode. Thanks for joining us. My name was Martin. My name was Adam. Uh, and my name was Phil. Thank you very much.